All right, good morning. Well, this is our uh, new study in the book of uh, Isaiah here, Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, as, uh, as you see read, every Sunday for the next nine weeks, we are going to read the entirety of Isaiah 40. And so we'll read it every Sunday together. I know it's a little long for you, but that's okay. You get to sit a long time while I talk, so it's all right. Um, but we are uh, making our way through that book. Now, we're not going to be going. It's a little different if you've been with us for a while. I normally just take verse by verse and kind of walk through the book. Today is sort of like that. But the coming Sundays are going to be all on Isaiah 40, and we're going to pull out a different attribute of God out of the chapter and kind of elaborate on that and really take the rest of Isaiah, the 66 uh, chapters, and kind of highlight those things as well. So it'll be a little different than maybe what we're used to, but um, we're going to be doing that. Also, I would like to highlight, as you see behind me, um, the, the artwork that's been done. So a lot of our artists in our, in our church have been drawing and making uh, these you saw in the bulletin today, there's one there. Each Sunday will be a different one highlighted uh, inside of the bulletin, um, as well as, again, what the banners are, is, is artwork that's been made by, by artists in our church. And uh, we still are looking for a few more. And so if you're interested in doing some drawings on this chapter, uh, it's very picturesque. There's lots of images in here. Uh, we'd uh, see Pastor, Pastor Eddie. We, we're still looking for some more, more drawings to be, to be done. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for an opportunity to study your word Thank you for the depth and the richness, God, of your word. Um, this chapter is um, it's just, it's just showing us who you are, and it's actually showing us who we are, too, and, um, and the difference between us. And God, you are mighty, you are holy, uh, you are great, and you are glorious. And so this morning, as we, as we tackle these subjects and try to, with our mind, try to grasp this great God that you are, would you help us this morning, God? We need your assistance uh, to understand and wrap our, wrap our mind around just, God, who you are and what that means, God, for our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the beginning, God. That's how, that's how the Bible begins. There was a time, if time it could be called that, I guess, when, uh, when God as a tr- trinity dwelt all alone, nothing but him. And guess what? He loved it. <laughs> he loved it. There was no need of a heaven to fill his glory with. There was no need of angels to sing his praises. There was no universe needing to be upheld by the word of his power. There was no humans needed to occupy his attention. It was just God. And, and this was not just for a few days, like prior to creation. This was from all of eternity, which again, it's going to be, we're going to have a few of these moments in this study. Where we're going to be like, um, I don't quite know how to wrap my brain around that one. But it was from all of eternity, God existed. And God was self-contained, self-sufficient, self-satisfied, in need of nothing and nobody other than himself. Had a universe or angels or humans been necessary to fill up something that was lacking in God, they would have existed from all of eternity as well, but they didn't. They were all created. We were all created. They have not all been around from eternity, but God has. And when God created them, get this, when God created those things, created the universe, created human beings, created all that, it added absolutely nothing to his glory. Creation was good, but it didn't make God any more glorious. It didn't make God any more joyful. It didn't make God any more satisfied than he already was. In other words, God was not lacking anything when he made us. And maybe you don't understand that. Maybe you're coming thinking that God made us because he was lacking something. He didn't lack anything. Matter of fact, Paul in Acts 17 said the following, he said this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to, fill, to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. And so why did God create? If he didn't have any needs, why did he do it? Well, let's think about us for a second. We as human beings create things because we have needs, right? We create, we create the car, right? We create the vehicle to get us to places to be more efficient. We create, create an HVAC unit, right, to be able to get you know, more comfortable within, within homes. We create the skyscraper. To, we run out of land. We go, we go up so we can have more, more business happening. But we also create things, not just because we need them, like a utilitarian culture. We also create things out of sheer pleasure, like the artwork that's been made uh, for our series um, I have uh, my son has uh, his, two little, his, his two friends across the street who just, just moved this week down this way. Um, and the, the three boys, uh, they're all like eight to ten year, years old. They like to create things out of sheer pleasure. Matter of fact, they go in my basement and shut the door and it's like a bomb goes off down there. They get all their Nerf guns out. Matter of fact, they got some new ones yesterday. And they, they pile them up and they, they take everything down. They take mats, they take tables and turn them upside down. I mean, they just make this huge, giant, like, war zone in there. You know, they're flipping. I'm, I'm giving them, like, tents to put up because I'm like, you know, I don't need this. Um, anyway, um, you know, they're... they're <laughs> don't expect me to help you with this one. I don't know how to do it. You guys figure it out. No. But they're, they're just creating all kinds of stuff, right? Why? Why do they do it? For the sheer pleasure of doing it. They just enjoy it. They love it. They enjoy setting all that stuff up and making all that stuff. This is why God created. He created you. He created me. And all of creation, for the sheer pleasure of doing it, he did it to display his glory and have beings reflect his glory and enjoy that glory. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, old uh, theologian in, uh, back in the 1700s, said this. He said that God, he compared God like a, like a fountain. He said God's like an overflowing fountain. Um, he said it doesn't overflow because it has to. Um, but it, because it just can't help it. It's just the way it goes. It just can't help it. God overflowed in creating what he did. And so as a fountain is inclined to overflow, so God is inclined to create. And in doing so, God made visible something that previously was hidden from everyone and everything else's eyes. What was that? His glory. Without creating, God's very essence would go forever unknown, unenjoyed by anyone other than himself. And that was okay. That was okay with God, but God decided to create so that people would reflect that, would see that, would enjoy that. And so the very reason for our existence, the very reason the world is all around us, the very reason things taste good, the very reason that things look good or sound good is because at the very core of it is the glory of God emanating from the very center of that. Isaiah 43 Verse 7 says this, everyone who's called, this is God speaking, everyone called my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made you for his glory. He has a purpose in that. Isaiah 43, 21, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. But what exactly is the glory of God, right? What does it mean we say God is glorious? Let's talk about that for a moment. You're going to have to put a lot of like, uh, educator hats on here for, for a little bit, okay? We're going to look at some theology for a moment. Let's talk about this. God's glory is the sum total of all of his attributes. It's the umbrella under which all the others exist. And we would say in theology, God is both intrinsically glorious, hang with me here, and ascribed as glorious. Let me define those two. There's words used in the Hebrew language. You may have heard some of these before. Uh, when we say God is intrinsically glorious, we use a couple of Hebrew words. One of them is a word called kavod. It's the word that means basically weightiness, okay? heaviness. Um, it's the idea that this, this word shows up. It talks about importance or value or weightiness. 
It shows up 40 times in Isaiah. So that's a pretty important word in Isaiah, right? It shows up 40 times. And many times it will talk about like, things like the glory of the nations. What is that talking about? It means the most best, uh, the, the most valuable part of the nation. So when we speak of God's weightiness, God's glory, we're talking about him and what's most valuable and important to him, namely himself. It's the essence of who he is. But this glory also emanates from God. And that's another Hebrew word. Maybe you've heard this one, uh, Shekinah. It's another Hebrew word talking about glory. It's what shines forth from God. Okay? It becomes visible, a visible part of his presence. Usually it's so bright, the Bible describes it, that it's unable to be seen. Remember Moses? He had to hide right in the cleft of the rock when, when God's glory passed by because he couldn't see it. The shepherds in the field at Jesus' birth, when they saw the glory of God shine in the field, it was like noonday at midnight. Paul, uh, when, he was, uh, when he was traveling on Damascus Road, the glory of Jesus appeared. Remember, he was blinded for three days and what he saw. Uh, the, John, in the book of Revelation, he sees the glory of Jesus and he falls down like he's dead. You know, it, it, this, is what the, this is what the glory of Jesus does. And so it... it um, and we talk about the intrinsic part, but also God is also ascribed as glorious. Now, this is our response to it, right? It's a response to that. You responded this morning uh, to the intrinsic value of that chair or that pew that you're sitting in um, by, by ascribing trust to it, right? You sat in it. It is valuable for resting your legs. We find the angels in Isaiah 6 doing this. We find them ascribing glory to God. They're ascribing value to him. Responding with mind, emotion, and will with what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. So, if God's intrinsic glory is the sun and the rays coming from that sun, then God's ascribed glory is our reaction to what the sun lights up that we see and enjoy. Okay, so that's what's going on with those words. So, let's take a closer look at that, and particularly here in Isaiah 40. Let's look at this attribute of God's glory. All right, we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see that God's glory is relentless, and our response is we should take comfort in that. It is revealed, and response should be that we repent when we see it. It's remarkable, we should rejoice, and it's rejected, and so we should proclaim it. All right? So number one, God's glory is relentless, so take comfort. Here's how Isaiah 40, verse 1 begins. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Now, just running and in, jumping into this middle, we're right in the middle of this book, right? 66 chapters, right in the middle here in chapter 40. This is a turning point. This is a hinge on the book of Isaiah. This is a different tone. If you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and then you picked up chapter 40, which I'd love to have done that, but you, it would have been a long service if we'd read all 39 chapters. But if you get to chapter 40, it's, 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 it's mind-boggling. It's completely different than the entire first 39 chapters. Isaiah is a, is a prophet. He is conveying the message of God, to God's people that they are made for his glory and yet the reality is, is that they're not living for his glory and they're destroying themselves in the process of not doing so. And the message Isaiah was to convey is way back in Isaiah 6. That was the part, if you remember, in that chapter, it's where Isaiah shows up one day and he enters the temple and he sees the glory of God and he's undone and he doesn't know what's going to happen. The angels are singing, right? Holy, holy, holy. And they're going around the throne. And at the end of all of that, God says, who will go for me, Right? And Isaiah said, hey, send me, right? Send me. We do this at the end of our service today. We'll say, you know, send me. It's from that chapter. And God's message for Isaiah says, okay, Isaiah, I want you to go. I want you to go speak. I want you to declare my glory. But guess what's going to happen? No one's going to listen to you. <laughs> no one's going to respond. No one's going to care. And that's exactly what the first 39 chapters is. Isaiah declaring the greatness of God and the people going, we don't care. So Isaiah would keep doing. He would keep, he would keep passing on the message. And he would, it would get rough for him. First 39 chapters, Isaiah is, is in deserts. 
He's wandering in caves. He, he goes without clothes for about two years, which is, you know, it gets a little risque in the first 39 chapters. All right, it was, it was rough. A wooden stock was his necktie at one point. Um, he's, uh, the, the songs he would have sung would have been at the top of the, like, the country music charts of today, right? It was lonely and broken and sad. And that was kind of what was going on. Bless you. <laughs> uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 begins this way. Here's how the book begins. It, begins. it says, The vision of Isaiah... The son of Amos, which he is concerning Judah, Jerusalem, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah's mission, his mission was 60 years long. Can you imagine 60 years proclaiming? No one's responding. No one's listening. He would go through four different kings as listed there in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. And when he started, at the very beginning, the people were experiencing peace. The people were experiencing prosperity. Everything was great. Everything was going really, really well. And when Isaiah started to proclaim that, he, all of a sudden there's a crisis that was kind of looming. There was a crisis coming. You say, what was that? There was this Assyrian empire that was coming. And they were, they were like a flame, like a forest fire, just licking up every nation in its path, right? And they were just, and they were headed, they had a beeline right for Israel. They're heading that way. They're coming to get them. And yet Isaiah would tell them, hey, they're coming. You need to get ready. And the people would become obstinate. They become hard-hearted, even through the warnings that Isaiah gave them. And so here's how chapter 1, verse 2 begins. It says, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. They have rebelled. And rebelled is interesting because rebelled, they rebelled against me. Chapter 1, verse 2, you know the last verse of Isaiah in chapter 66? You know the word that's used there? Rebelled. It's like bookends to this book. It's a book on the rebellion of the people of God in light of the glory of God is really the essence of what Isaiah is. And so um, Isaiah, it goes on to say this, chapter 1, verse 3, the ox knows its owner. This is God speaking. The donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A oh, simple nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They, have uttered, they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds... They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So the people had forsaken the Lord, meaning they had basically treated him as a last resort. They despised the Lord, meaning they basically put a discount on God and been like, yeah, not very valuable. Let's just get rid of him. Let's sell him off. And the picture that he gives is the people of Israel like a man who's been just beat up. He's clobbered from head to toe. He doesn't even feel it, though. He doesn't even feel what's happening. And Isaiah is saying, this is you guys. Never comprehending why or even imagining that things could be better. You're missing the entire purpose of your life. You're missing the glory of God for all these things that you have in your life. And so that's the, that's the sound of the first 39 chapters, all right? That's what you're going to hear chapter after chapter after chapter is that kind of language. And so even, out, even in chapter 39, the previous chapter, there are chapter here, it actually is predicted that they're going to go to Babylon. They're going to be taken captive. They're going to come in. They're going to take you. And so Isaiah 40 is really a picture of 100 years into the future. Isaiah is almost propelled into the future, and he describes God coming to them. And he did. He says he, he, he came to them. He says, what does God do? Verse, chapter 40, verse 1. In, in light of this, they had rebelled. They didn't hear. They went into exile. How should God respond? Well, if you read the first 39 chapters, you would think, you know, hellfire and brimstone here. I mean, this is, uh, he's, he's going to cut them off. He's going to be done. They are so hard-hearted, so hard-headed. He's going to write them off. First word to them is what? Comfort. And that's what's amazing about it. Comfort. Comfort to you, he says. He is relentless. 
no matter how much you have discounted God's glory, no matter how much you have put it on the back burner, no matter how much you have dragged his name through the dirt, it is as it were you can't throw him off the scent, right? You can't. He's the hound of heaven is still in pursuit of you. He's not letting you go no matter how far you run. We saw that. We just saw this in Jonah, right? No matter how far you run, get in the boat to not Nineveh and just try to get away. He's coming after you. He will find you. You are his. He is bringing you back. And so the people's response is, again, they're hard-hearted in that. And God's determined, though, he will be glorified in them. Isaiah 49, verse 3 says, You are my servant in whom I will be glorified. I will. I will do this. It will happen. And so here in chapter 40, verse 2, he goes on to say, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that a warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So here's Isaiah again, projected by the Holy Spirit into the future. There he sits. Um, sits God's people in Babylon, modern day kind of Iraq area, 100 years into the future. And as he looks at them, uh, he comes to them and saying, he's saying to us, he's saying to them, Isaiah's saying to us and to them, God has not abandoned you. You are going to feel like he has, but he has not. He's still present in Babylon just like he was back in Israel. And God says the exile is over. He says their sin is forgiven and God's presence is among them. That he has taken their sin and tossed into the deepest ocean, not as, not as a cork, but as lead. And when he says he is, I love this language, Lord's hand double for all of our sins. You may, you may read that and go, does that mean they're getting double punishment for their sins? Oh, no. It's double comfort. It's double grace for their sins. I'm going to give you more grace than even you deserve. Than even more than with the sins you committed, the grace that overflowed. I'm going to give you more than that. That's what it means. I'm going to give you double the amount of that. And this is God's response to our hard-heartedness and rebellion, which should make us want to, right, to come back. There is an end to the disciplines of God. Faith is not all struggle. It's also relief. It's, relief. it's also hope. It's also new beginnings. God overrules our stupidity with his own absolute pardon through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Do we sin? Yes. Do we suffer for it? Yeah, we do. We have consequences for it. Is that where God leaves us? No. That's the point, of this, that's the point here. He doesn't leave us there. When his disciplines are done its work, God comes back with overflowing comfort. See in God not a frown, but a, but a smile. Not distance, but nearness. Even when, even when we don't act like God's people, which they weren't doing, <laughs> he still identifies. He still calls them what? My people. He still says, I'm your God, right? Speak tenderly to them. This is in Isaiah 30, verse 18 through 26 says this, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be, gra- he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. Your eyes shall see your teacher. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to your right and when you turn to your left. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. And the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. (laughs) The consequences, they went along with the decisions that they had made that God had to bring into their life. And he's saying, I, I'm going to heal up and bind up all that stuff that's gone on. God will be glorified in you who are his children. And he will reveal his glory to you. He's relentless in that. And you can take comfort that he will heal you. Things won't always be this way. 
We were made to delight and live for the glory of God, and God has determined that that will happen no matter what method that we choose. Again, we could choose the hard way, with, like, like Jonah did, or we can choose the easy way by obeying up front. Isaiah 33, 10 says, Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Isaiah 61, 3, he says, God says, I have come to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. My friends, what you need most today, okay, what you need most today is not another meal, not another show, not another March Madness game, right? Not another conversation. What you need is just a glimpse of the glory of God. That's what our hearts need. That's what we need more than anything. This is why God says he will not give his glory to another person. He will not do it because we need that. He will not pass that off. Number two, God's glory is revealed, so, so repent. Verse three, this language may sound familiar if you've read the Gospel of Matthew. Um, John the Baptist uses this language. Verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord Make straight a desert, a highway for our God. So what is he saying? God's saying the king is coming. And he comes to us not on the mountain. Where does he come to? Where is he coming to? He's coming down to the desert, right? He's coming down to where the brokenness is. He comes to us as we are, where we are in the darkest of hours. And he comes to us when we repent. You say, what is that? When we turn, when we look up, when we notice. It's what it means by make straight, you say, what is repent of what? Repent of demeaning and devaluing and discounting the glory of God. Instead of God being weighty, right, and glorious, we see him as weightless, right? Just kind of a featherweight. Not very much there, not, not, not very much uh, importance there, not very much application to my life. It's just he's just kind of there. No, he needs to be weighty. He needs to hold your life down like an anchor. So verse 5 goes on, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is saying that the glory of Jesus will be revealed to the whole world. His glory will be admired and trembled everywhere. Everyone will see the value of him one day, even if they die rejecting him. Even upon their entrance into hell, they will see the value. And they, every knee will bow, if Philippians says, and every tongue will confess. They, everyone here in this place right now will acknowledge the value and worth of Jesus Christ. My friends, you want to value that and give that glory now. You want to submit now. You want to raise the white flag now. Because there's coming a day where you're going to have to bow the knee one way or another. And at that point, it'll be too late. It'll be too late. He goes on, uh, Isaiah 2, 17, The haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, guys, the reason we don't turn to God, the reason we don't repent, is because we just don't see the value in Jesus. The reason we don't get on mission for him is because we just don't see the appeal of Jesus. The reason we don't obey him is because we don't see his worth. If we had our eyes open to see just how glorious he is, we'd put down all the ridiculous sin, we'd abandon the passivity, and we'd run, run hard after Christ. The deacons were reading, reading a, a book, and uh, there was a poet that meant, said the following. This is really good. He says, if you want to convince men to build ships, don't pass out shipbuilding manuals. Don't organize them into labor groups and hand out wood. Teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. You want to move them? You want to get them rallying? You want to get them moving forward? You want to get them building those ships? Don't just give them supplies. Don't just tell them what to do. Make them want to get out there. 
And my friends, that's, that's the way it is with us. You, you want to get out there, you've got to see the value and the worth and the prize that is Jesus Christ. You, you've got to be enamored with that. You've got to rejoice in that before you'll ever move forward out that way. Isaiah 6.3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth right, is full of his glory. It's everywhere. It's all out there. There's plenty of motivation for us to see, not just in Scripture, but throughout the world, that God is always putting himself on display. He's showing us his glory in Scripture. He shows us his glory throughout the world. It's everywhere. Again, the reason we don't see God's glory in the world is because we keep filling it with the earth with our glory, right? Our little kingdoms, our little businesses, our movies, our songs, our victories, right? But God's glory is here if you just look. Just look around you. See it. Isaiah 11, 9, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's, it's moving. God is coming back. It's spreading. The glory of God will come and will spread. So do you see it around you? Do you stop long enough to look? If not, could it be that you've been blind yourself to your own self-glory and are enamored by the glory of man instead of the glory of God that is around you? You know, spring is coming. It's a great opportunity. I, I, I promise you it's coming. I know I, I doubt it at times, but it, it is coming, right? It's coming. Things are going to bloom. We've got to park for a reason. Get outside and just take some time to look and see. Go to the zoo. Like, go places and look and see the glory of God. Let that melt your, your cold heart to, or callousness that you have towards God and just look at what he's got out there. Number three, God's glory is remarkable, so rejoice. So verse six goes on. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grass withers, flower fades. And he goes on to say, but the word of the God will stand forever. You see what he's saying here? There is a comparison being made between the value and worth of people and the value and worth of God. It is not a statement on just that life is short. That, that's, that's part of the application, but that's not the point of what he's saying. It's rather focusing on the value of life. That's why he calls it uh, by its, he uses the word, it's beauty, right? It's value he's talking about here. First Peter makes it clear. He uses, he quotes from this chapter. He says, First Peter 1.24, all flesh is, is like grass and its glory is like the flower of grass. God is trying to get his people to see trying to get you to see that his glory is what you really need and really want. All that people can give to you leaves you empty. God's, God is more glorious and more valuable than that. There's a, a verse early on in Isaiah 2, verse 22, it says this, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. But what account is he? Just think about that one for a moment. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is is he the, whole, the entirety of that chapter two is about the day of the Lord, a day when human pride and achievement will be laid low in the dust, and God alone will be glorified in that day. And he's showing us how man's temporary greatness and glory is just that. It's temporary. Man is but dust. All of his glory will slowly descend into the grave with him. Stop regarding man. He's, he's, just, he's got breath in his nostrils, right? Take inventory of all that you have all that you are, even all that you envy of others. And think about it. Think about all the things that you have right now. Think about all the things that someone else has that you want. Think about all that you are. How long is that really going to last? How long is it really going to last? Even if you make, make it to the top of your, your business, right? If you have the fastest car, the biggest truck, the best toys, your name will be forgotten. I hate to break it to you. It will be forgotten. 
The world will not come to an end at your death or my death. It will keep going. People will keep moving on. I know it just kind of puts us in our place a little bit, right? It helps us see we're not as glorious and, and, and as we think we are. And that's why he says, well, stop regarding man. Stop thinking and valuing man so much. Who cares what man thinks? This is why if you look at chapter 40 of Isaiah, you look over at verse 18, he says this twice. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And then look at verse 25. To whom then shall you compare with me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Like, who are you going to compare me to? What are you investing in that's just going to fade away and go away? Because the glory of God is what fills the void of the soul. It is what makes the heart sing. It is what you and I were made for. So Isaiah 26, 8 says, your name and your members are the desire of our soul. It's what we are. It's what we need. Isaiah 65, 18, be glad. Rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing. I create her people for gladness. Augustine in the fourth century said, you have made us for yourself, speaking of God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's where rest is found. That's where hope is found. God is all-sufficient which makes him the supreme object which is ever to be sought by man. He is the only being and the only thing in all the universe. Think about this. The only being, the only person in all the universe that will never fail, that will never fade, that will never leave you. And once you've tasted that glory of God, you never rest content until you have it again and again. You go back to it. And remember, this, is, this makes sense now. If this is what we need, this is what we want, this is what our heart's desire is, even if we don't even realize it, it makes sense that senses what's Satan's strategy? What should be his strategy? You know what it is? It's to blind us to this value, isn't it? To enamor us with all the stuff and all the trinkets and all the things out there in the world and get us so absorbed in it that we lose sight of what is actually the most important thing. Second Second Corinthians four four. In whose case the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelieving so they may not see the light of the gospel of the what? The glory of Christ. Right? That's his strategy. Listen, you were not made to go without being satisfied with God. And if you go along without your soul being satisfied with God, you will look and crave other things in the world to fill that void. You've got to fill it. You're in spiritual danger when you allow yourself to go any length of time without tasting the glory of Jesus and savoring his presence. Maurice Roberts Put it this way, he says, when Jesus ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls go in silent search of other lovers. It just goes in silent search. You don't even realize what it's doing. You don't realize your heart is moving that way until you're, all, you're, all, you're already too far gone, you're too far down the road. When, your heart, and when Jesus ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, when you stop sitting at the feet of Christ, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. Therefore, Jesus is better than anything you can put in competition with him. He's better than health. He's better than riches. He's better than honor. Other things maintain life. He gives life, right? He doesn't decay or lose value. He's better than the best of ideas. He's better than the best of pleasures. He's better than the world. He's better than your friends. He's better than your phone. He's better than your Xbox. He's better than your bracket. He's better than your career, right? He's better than your singleness. He's better than your spouse. He's better than your future spouse. He's better than your children. He's better than your future children. He's better than your grandchildren. Better than your future grandchildren. Like, he's better than anything you can put there. Anything. And those things are... They can be good. I'm not saying those are all bad. But he, he's better than those things. Don't get so enamored here that you lose sight of what you were made for, which is the glory of God. 
These verses in Isaiah 40 are trying to get us to see that, that God is better than any person or what any person can do. His glory is better than man's glory. You can trust him. You don't need to be afraid of man's disapproval or lack of any attention. Whenever you see someone who you fear, whenever you see someone whose approval that you crave, imagine Jesus Christ standing next to them. And who really, his opinion really matters here? Whose opinion really matters? Which of them is more glorious, more majestic, more holy, more beautiful, more loving, more satisfying? And Jesus is always better than that. There's a, a book, not even printed anymore, which is kind of unfortunate, um, but it's a book with uh, two back Puritans. It was a, a gal named Mary Love and her husband, Christopher Love. And Christopher Love was a Puritan. He, he was sentenced to die. He was in the prison. He was going to the guillotine the next day. And his wife wrote him, they wrote letters to each other. And it's just a book with just the letters um, in it. And there's one where Mary wrote to him, and this is part of what she said, in light, kind of just getting a great way of looking at this. She wrote this to him on the day, night before he was to die. She said, I dare not speak to you, nor have I thought within my own heart of my unspeakable loss, but wholly keep my eye fixed upon your inexpressible and inconceivable gain. You leave but a sinful mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. You leave but children and brothers and sisters to go to the Lord Jesus, your eldest brother. You leave friends on earth to go to the enjoyment of saints and angels and spirits of just men made perfect in glory. You do but leave earth for heaven and change a prison for a palace. And if natural affections should begin to arise, I hope that spirit of grace that is within you will quell them, knowing that all things here below are but dung and dross in comparison of those things that are above. I know you keep your eye fixed on the hope of glory, which makes your feet trample on the loss of earth. What a perspective, right? Lastly, God's glory is rejected, so we should proclaim it. Verse 9 says, get up on a high mountain, right? Lift up your voice with strength and say, behold our God. So while God's glory, is, God's glory will fill the earth and is advancing as we speak, God calls his own people to make his glory known throughout the whole world. And who better to do that than those who have tasted that glory, right? That makes sense that we should be the ones who go out and proclaim it, who have been changed from the inside out by this glory, by this gospel. And God says literally to lift up with strength. And I love the imagery that's here. The idea is there's like a battle taking place. And, and one person kind of climbs up and kind of gets to the top of the mountain, looks down at all the people kind of fighting, maybe over something very insignificant. And he yells at them basically and he says, stop. Look, look up here. And he kind of points up and he's like, look up, look, behold your God. He is so much more valuable than whatever it is you're fighting over down here. That, that's the image he's talking about. Behold your God, look up, get your eyes off one another and all the differences that you may have and look up at the glory of God. It's so much more valuable than that. John Piper put it this way. He says, people are starving for the greatness of God. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market. But the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. We need to tell people how great our God is. Because the fact is, is that they're blind to it, right? We saw we talked about this last week in Jonah 4. They can't see. They can't see the glory of Jesus. We need to magnify God in our lives, not, not like a microscope, right? Not like we're trying to make God who's really, really tiny look really, really big, right? That's not what we're doing. We're talking like telescope-wise, magnify him like a telescope. Make something that's huge and vast and massive and just help bring it into focus with our lives, right? We're helping them see God through our lives, see the value of him through our lives. We're inviting them to come to him. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3 says this, Come, 
Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. See who has no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. My friends, one day Jesus will be glorified on this earth. He will reign on this earth. And every eye will see that. And his beauty will be seen by all. And we will marvel and rejoice at such beauty being put on display. Isaiah 4, verse 2 says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. I love that language. You see that? In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. What does that mean? It's going to bloom. It's just a branch. Like wintertime, it's dead. It's going to come to life, right? That's the message. The message we are proclaiming actually from the mountains today is behold our God in humility and suffering and anguish hanging on a tree. We, we are proclaiming the branch in winter, right? We're proclaiming the branch who is Jesus Christ who died, who one day, who rose again, who will return one day and the beauty will spread. The, the, the blossoms will come on the branch. And though Jesus is beautiful, will be seen as beautiful. Did you know there was a time where the glory of God in the person work of Jesus Christ actually was a time where it wasn't beautiful? Listen to the prophecy from Isaiah. Here's how he described it. Isaiah 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant describing Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground, right? He had no form or majesty that we should look on him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and esteemed him not. People couldn't even look at him. When he died on the cross, it was like a hunk of meat on the cross. People couldn't even look at what was going on there. The glory of God was on a cross. The glory of God was beaten down, right? And the cross became, and this is what the thing is, the cross became the ultimate display. As gruesome and as brutal as it was, as ugly as it was, at the same exact time, it was the most beautiful display of the glory of God. Everything about God, all the attributes of God were displayed at the cross. At the cross shows God's holiness where God takes sin so seriously that his son had to die for it. It shows us God's wrath where he pours out his wrath upon his son for our sake. It shows God's justice where, he made, where God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It shows us God's love, right? For God so, what? Loved the world that he gave his only son. It shows us God's sovereignty where it says Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It shows us God's wisdom where he enacted a plan where he would be both the just and the justifier of men. It displayed God's faithfulness where Jesus was promised as the one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and by his stripes we would be healed. It shows God's, even God's eternality where Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundations of the earth. It shouldn't be a shock to us to find that this very passage, Isaiah 40, is quoted all over the New Testament. And this particular section we looked at today was quoted by John the Baptist on the shoreline, right? When he would call for the people to repent, to make straight the ways of the Lord in preparation for the coming of Christ. That's what he was doing. That's what his call is for us today. His call is that. What is, what is crooked in your life that mean, needs to be made straight in light of God's glory? What is wounded that you need healing in light of God's comfort? What, is, what has usurped the value of Jesus 
that you need God's grace for? Who around you is blind to the glory of Jesus that you need to say, behold, your God? That's what the book of Isaiah and Isaiah 4 is going to push us to. That God is that, he's that glorious and that worth, not just giving our whole life to and committing everything to and laying down everything at his feet, but also worth proclaiming and worth sharing and worth telling about. That's what we hope to achieve through the project here of Isaiah chapter 40. So I'm going to pray. And when I pray, we're going to have a time here. If you're new with us, we're going to have some quiet time here. Just get quiet for a minute. I'm going to stop talking. I know I talk a lot. We're going to be quiet. Give you an opportunity to reflect on what we heard this morning from Isaiah 40. And as you reflect on that, you have an opportunity to talk to God. Some of you have not talked to God in a long time. Some of you may have never talked to God. This is an opportunity to do so. You say, I don't want to say, Chris, just be honest. Just, just be honest. Just share exactly what you feel. God can hear anything. <laughs> okay? Talk to him. And as you, as you are, if you're a Christian today, as you are ready, if you're ready today, if you're prepared to come forward to the tables or back to the tables to take the bread and juice, it's a remembrance and remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us, the glory of God being broken down, right, for us. And we do it in remembrance of him. And we give our offerings as a response. If you don't know Christ, or if you're just here and you just got a weight you're carrying, you need comfort that God has called for this morning, there'll be people around to pray with, right? Come see them. Um, if you don't know this glory, this glory of God, if it seems like a foreign idea to you, you have no idea what we're talking about and who the glory of Jesus is and why, why all this death on the cross stuff, we would love to sit down and talk to you about that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to reflect on this chapter. It is a glorious chapter. It is loaded with so much language and so much weight. Um, God, we all admit there's not a single one of us in this room that can say we have valued, we have treasured, we have delighted in your glory as we should. God, we, we get so lost sometimes. We get so blinded by the tyranny of the urgent. We get so blinded by the, the activities of this world, the busyness of life. That, God, we just lose sight of why we're even here and who you are and why that makes a difference. God, I pray that you would just bring us, God, to repentance, bring us back to the feet and to the foot of the cross. Lord Jesus, help us to take up our cross today and follow you once again. And Lord, help us to get out into this world and proclaim the greatness of our God. In Jesus' name, amen.